Welcome to the seventh episode in the second season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with us is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. This show, we're going back to the topic of federal quarantine rules, or dictates, or restrictions, or guidance, or laws. I don't know what they are. Anyway, they are for travelers coming into Canada. Because the Trudeau government has issued new restrictions, laws, rules, whatever, and the Justice Center is challenging them. Quick story. Prior to the podcast, John had copied me and a few other people on an email reply he had sent back to someone about these new restrictions. He was seeking some clarification. The funny part, to me at least, was that everyone that had been copied started chipping in with their ideas of what the new government rules meant, and everybody seemed to have a different opinion. Some thought the incarceration period was a solid three days, no matter what. Some thought it would be less if a test came back early. Some thought it would cost $2,000 per person for a stay in a government-run hotel hell. Others thought it would cost less because you could choose your own hotel. And on and on like this. John, I don't know if you got to the bottom of it, but can you tell me now what your understanding of the rules are and why they are being enforced as of February 22nd? I thought they were already being enforced. What's going on? Well, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday, February the 16th, and the legal team and myself have been working the entire long weekend. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast, it means that the uh, federal court challenge against uh, Trudeau's uh, forcible confinement of uh, innocent Canadians who have not been charged with any crime uh, the lawsuit is underway because we're uh, we're filing it today, the 16th or Wednesday, the 17th, and uh, it's it's just nightmarish, and I I'm still stunned at how draconian this is, and utterly utterly unscientific. This is uh, evidence free public policy. So the. My understanding is that starting February 22nd, all air travelers, every single one of them, even if they boarded a plane with a negative COVID test, even if it's a negative PCR test, and they're asymptomatic, all international travelers coming back to Canada starting February 22nd will have to be imprisoned for three days in a hotel. Full stop. Everybody. Even like a single person that lives home alone. It's like, no, the government doesn't trust you to go home. It's not somehow it's not sufficient just to impose uh, draconian penalties on people who break their quarantine. Right. That's a whole other topic. Uh, But this is akin to uh, the police saying, well, you might break the law against speeding. So we're not going to let you get into your car and drive. So we're locking up people to make sure that in the first three days back in Canada, that they're not going to break quarantine, whereas if you allowed people to quarantine at home and threatened them with fines as high as $750,000, and not quite sure if that's the right number, but it's, it's up there and six months in jail, et cetera, et cetera. The federal government is saying it's not good enough to have a law in place. And we tell you that there's severe, severe penalties for breaking that law uh, no, that's not good enough. We're going to lock you up for three days, everybody. 
Now, I hope I'm wrong, but that's my interpretation of the government's announcement that, that all Canadians will be locked up. Now, the utterly unscientific, I mean, this goes down to starting at the very basest level, kind of starting at ground bottom, this is not a virus that warrants extreme or exceptional or coercive measures. And I say that based on the government's own data and statistics. Uh, statistics Canada tells us that the number of deaths in Canada in 2020 is very much in line with the number of deaths in 2019, 2018, 2017. What does that tell you? It tells you that we're not dealing with an unusually deadly killer because if we really did have a, you know, an unusually deadly killer that we should all be very afraid of, you'd see the deaths in 2020. You'd see some significant spike. It's like, holy cow, the the death rate, you know, per 100,000 was, was pretty steady. And then 2020 came along and, oh, look at that noticeable increase in the number of people dying. It's not there. So that's the first big point is that the uh, number of deaths are not increasing, which proves that none of these, you know, all the social distancing and mask wearing, shutting down schools, uh, throwing millions of Canadians into unemployment, destroying the economy, driving people to suicide, uh, forcing people into isolation, uh, like social isolation and, and loneliness and all of the anxiety and depression and drug. None of it is necessary uh, because this isn't a virus that warrants any kind of coercive government action. This is a virus that we can take care of on a voluntary basis by not visiting grandma in person. If your grandmother is 85 years old and she's in a nursing home and she's got emphysema and heart disease and she's recovering from cancer and this, that, and the other thing, then, you know, don't go visit the vulnerable. That's the other big component is that we know that uh, there are no children dying of this. And the odd time when somebody under 20 dies it makes a headline because it's so rare. And then it's it's always an individual who's severely immune compromised and they are in danger of dying from all kinds of causes, not just COVID. So there's no threat to youth. There's no threat to young adults. And uh, unless you're 85 years old and you're already dying of, of cancer and heart disease and you're in a nursing home where the average life expectancy is 12 months, unless you're in that vulnerable category, it's not a threat so that's kind of the, the bottom thing. Moving up towards the surface, the second deep issue is that asymptomatic people are not significant spreaders of the virus. So if you're feeling healthy, you're not passing it around to other people. But yet the government assumes and refuses to disclose the science on this. I'll do my weekly uh, Stephen Buick update. Stephen Buick oh, yeah, is... Right. Stephen Buick is the communications director for the Alberta Minister of Health. And I've asked him, can you please tell me what is the scientific basis for the Alberta government's belief that asymptomatic people are significant spreaders of COVID? And it's an important question because all of the, you know, why can my kids not go to their martial arts school? Uh, why is it illegal for me to have friends over for dinner? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. All of it is predicated on the notion that asymptomatic people are dangerous spreaders of the virus. And that's not backed up by science. I've asked the government to show me the science. And so we're, this is now the, uh, it's been more than two weeks. Uh, no answer from Stephen Buick as to what is the scientific evidence for the Alberta government's uh, belief that uh, asymptomatic people are dangerous spreaders. 
So, so Stephen Buick, communicate with us. Come on. Can, you know what, Richard? I I am confident that I would get the same non-response from any other health minister in Canada. You ask them a question, like show me the science, and they stonewall you. And, you know, every provincial government and the federal government, they have collectively, there's over 500,000 federal and provincial and municipal civil servants in Canada. That's a very conservative estimate, 500,000. So government has the resources. They could say to somebody, hey, Joe, post the science on the website, but they're not doing it. So what does that tell you? It tells you a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. lack, of, lack of integrity, lack of intellectual honesty, which then reasonably leads us to say, well, why should we believe anything that the government tells us when they're not answering? And uh, you've heard me rant previously, all these other questions that they're just not answering. Okay. Well, answer me this regarding what you guys were just working on. Yeah. What are they bringing this in under? Is it some kind of law that they've passed or is it some kind of... Yes. Well, Section 58... Section 58 of the Quarantine Act authorizes the federal government to place restrictions on incoming travelers, people returning to Canada, or all people coming into Canada. The federal government has the authority under the Quarantine Act to to do all kinds of stuff, but there are conditions that must be met. And I don't have all four of them in front of me, but I can tell you two of them are one that – uh, there is a serious and imminent threat to public health. That's a condition that's not being met here because COVID is not an unusually deadly killer. Asymptomatic people don't spread it. And there's no evidence that there's any kind of a link between international travel and the people who are dying in nursing homes who are 80% of the COVID deaths. So there's no serious and imminent threat. So right off the bat, they've lost on that point. Secondly, that there are no other reasonable alternatives. Second criterion. Well, what is unreasonable about people quarantining at home? And this is assuming that, you know, COVID is something to be afraid of and asymptomatic people are spreaders and it's linked to international travel, even if those things were true, which they're not. Why can't people quarantine at home, especially when you've got the, you know, the penalty that if you break that, you can spend up to six months in jail and be fined $750,000. Is that not coercion enough? (laughs) You say quarantine at home and it's backed up that way. So it's under the authority of the Quarantine Act. And, um, but there are restrictions on it. That's, that's good. Okay. So that's how you're challenging it, I assume, right? So we're, we're going to be arguing in federal court, uh, that the, uh, provisions of the Quarantine Act have not been complied with. And I think the heavier emphasis, the heavier emphasis in our application is just the fact that people can quarantine at home and the government has not produced any evidence to show that it's necessary for any reason to lock people up uh, right. for three days at their okay. own expense. Yeah, okay, that was another thing. Have they figured out what the expenses are? You book your own hotel or do they have to go to one of these rather strange hotel hells where everything is covered in, wrapped in, I don't know, painter's plastic. That's what it looked like to me when I saw the picture in the National Post with the story that came out today. Looked like well, both. Just, oh, okay. Well, both. Oh. The The federal government is is graciously giving uh, Canadians the opportunity to to book a reservation. You can pick your own hotel, where you're oh, going yeah. to get locked up, locked up at for three days. Uh, but the 
this makes this is going to wipe out. I think conservatively, it's going to wipe out a 90 percent of international air travel, if not ninety nine percent. And here's why: in the recent 10, 20 years, it's become possible for many, many, many middle class people. Remember the middle class, the one that uh, the used to be wiped out right now. The one yeah. that's getting wiped out. Well, the, the middle. You know, it used to be in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s that only wealthy people could travel on a regular basis. If you were middle class, maybe you could uh, afford to fly back to Europe, you know, once every second year, once every third year, once every fourth year, depending on your income. But it wasn't like, you know, going to Hawaii at Christmas time or going back to Italy or Japan or the United Kingdom to visit your cousins. That that was a purview of the rich. Most, most middle-class people could not afford international travel. We've come to a point up until, you know, a few months ago where many middle-class people that are not wealthy could take a, a holiday in Mexico or Hawaii or could fly back, you know, even once a year to see their relatives and friends in another country. And this is being completely and utterly destroyed. And here's why. I figure that, um, okay, a mom and dad and their two kids, uh, they could get uh, one week all-inclusive in Mexico for about $8,000 or less. You know, give or take, depending, do you want one room or two rooms for, for the four of you? Or, uh, you know, is there a sale on uh, which particular Tequila. location are you going to? You know, are you going into a five-star versus a four-star or three-star? But... You know, I just throw that out there. Like a family of four, mom, dad, and two kids could could take an all-inclusive uh, vacation for eight thousand, maybe as little as seven or six thousand, maybe nine or ten thousand, and that's something that a lot of people, obviously, a lot of people cannot afford that, but a lot of people can. Well, now this returning family at a cost of two thousand dollars per person, they're going to have to pay eight thousand dollars when they get back to Canada for the privilege of getting locked up in a hotel. Because it's the government's making it illegal for the four of them to go from the airport straight home, have their groceries delivered to their home, and just be at home for two weeks with the four of them. Which, by the way, is already also a violation of your charter freedoms, but that's not nearly as egregious, I think, as because uh, house arrest is, is house arrest, right? Criminals get the electronic bracelets and they get placed under house arrest. It is a form of confinement. It's a definite significant restriction of your charter freedom to liberty, which is this fundamental human right that a lot of Canadians seem to no longer care about at all, the, the right to just come and go where you want, when you want. Uh, and as long as you're not committing a crime, you, you go where you please and you hang out with people as you please and so on and so forth. When you're confined to your house, uh, that's house arrest. Mm. Repressive regimes do it. They... Uh, uh, so, I mean, all regimes do it. Democracies do it, that that there could be a prisoner that gets placed under house arrest rather than a prison. And it is a severe limitation. That you well, actually, that's, I wanted you to bring in that column that you just sent out on the, the post-millennial. You wanted to talk a little bit about that. And that's probably, since you're bringing up points that you made in the column, perhaps it's a good time to talk about it now with the Freedom Index or Freedom House Index. Canada seems to be grading towards some kind of North Korea situation here. Yeah, That's the direction that we're heading yeah. in, absolutely. So Freedom House is an organization that monitors the state of freedom. And uh, if you Google Freedom House, it'll it should come up pretty quickly that way. 
And they have an index and every year they write a report and they give every country in the world a ranking. Uh, you can get up to 100 points as Norway did. And I think Sweden and Finland, they got 100 points. Canada and Uruguay got 98 points. Japan got 96. Germany got 94. Uh, the United Kingdom got somewhere in the 90s. The United States scored 86. And the they look at the political rights. They look at the state of democracy. Like one of the questions they ask is, are the laws and the government policies determined by the elected representatives? Mm. Right? Because because some places they'll they'll have elections and they'll have an assembly, but it's it's more of an advisory council. It doesn't really have any power because the real power is with you know the president or uh, the chief religious leader of Iran or some council or whatever, right? So mm. that's an example. Or they ask about the rule of law. They ask, uh, do government policies treat different segments of the population equally? Because a lot of countries in the world, you know, they'll have, you know, Muslims are first class citizens, non-Muslims are second class citizens, or, you know, members of this tribe get lots of privileges and benefits and members of another tribe do not, you know, or uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, women have next to zero rights they were recently uh, graciously allowed the privilege of being allowed to to drive. That's been a change in the last year or two in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but but women uh, need you know the permission of a guardian to uh, to be out and about and to leave the country. Uh, the Freedom House looks at you know our passports issued freely. There are places where if you're a critic of the regime, Saudi Arabia was mentioned. Uh, it's like oh you're not getting a passport. You're not allowed to leave the country. Uh, as opposed to a democracy where everybody gets a passport and unless you're locked up in jail, uh, you have the right to leave the country. In North Korea, you'd get shot if you... Uh, some interesting, very disturbing stories of people that managed to get out of North Korea and they are harrowing, terrifying tales because the whole country is uh, one big prison camp and you can't get out. Uh, so Freedom House goes after, uh, they look at the political rights, and that's the first 40 points. And that includes some of the ones I mentioned, the, the rule of law. Is there a genuine democracy because laws are shaped by the elected representatives? Which is a point now where Canada, in my view, should get you know a two out of four, not a four out of four, because in every province... The laws are made by the chief medical officer and the elected representatives are now an advisory council. Now, we have no idea how much input they have, but the, any input that the elected MPPs or, or MLAs have on public policy is through some informal and secret process. And when I say secret, I don't mean that it's sinister. I just mean that we don't know. Uh, let me take Alberta, for example. We don't know how much or how little influence the elected representatives have on Dina Hinshaw, the chief medical officers. Maybe they have a lot of influence. I, I don't know. Maybe they have only a little bit. I don't know. It's secret. And it's informal. Uh, mm. I'm sure that when an MLA contacts the uh, contacts Dina Hinshaw, actually, maybe I'm not so sure. I don't know if their phone call or email gets returned, uh, but we don't know. And so we have a very undemocratic system right now where the Justice Center is challenging it in court in Manitoba, where the chief medical officer is, to, to a significant extent, is 
the Legislative Assembly. I mean, the, the powers of the Legislative Assembly of Manitoba are vested in, in Dr. Brent Rusin, the chief medical officer, who dictates when churches will open and close and how many people are allowed inside and, you know, whether <coughs> you can buy uh, only food at certain stores, but the toy section is closed and that it's, you know, illegal to spend time with your friends in a meaningful way, which would be in person because uh, we all know that uh, even though Zoom and Skype are useful tools, uh, there's just no substitute for connecting with somebody in person and is detrimental to our mental health and, and our emotional and psychological health to be prohibited from connecting in person with other people. It's very destructive. That's part of this uh, pro-lockdown religion is this religious belief that our bodies are infinitely more important than our minds and our souls and our spirits. And that is a religious belief uh, that I do not share in myself and not one that I want to have imposed on, on me and on the entire country. But that's what we have now with the lockdowns. It's the imposition of a religious belief that our top priority is that our physical bodies should live as long as possible and to hell with our uh, minds and spirits and souls because they really don't matter. So if we cut off and make it illegal to meet in person, and if that harms our mental, spiritual, psychological, and mental health, well, too bad. It doesn't matter. So I think mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a religious belief that people are entitled to have. I would go to bat for somebody who wants to exercise and practice that religious belief. But now it's imposed on all of society through lockdown policies. Yeah, maybe you could, uh, just before we go back to this Freedom Index, can you give us a little update on what happened in the Manitoba case? I know you guys presented as we were actually doing our last podcast, so we didn't really have any sort of feedback on um, on how it went. I don't suppose at this point we have a decision anyway, but uh, is it is it well-received, our evidence? <laughs> Please tell us, yes. <laughs> well, you never know. Um, I remember when I argued for the uh, University of Calgary students, I, they were they had been found guilty of non-academic misconduct simply for having peacefully expressed their pro-life opinions on campus, and the university found them guilty of non-academic misconduct. The wrong think, yeah, wrong think, <laughs> wrong speak. Yeah. The uh, the penalty was not severe. The penalty was a warning that if they continued to express their opinions on campus, it would lead to uh, suspension, probation, and ultimately expulsion. We took that to court. And uh, I remember oral argument. I thought it went so poorly. Uh, opposing counsel, which was a fellow by the name of Peter Linder, he was on with a big law firm. He had you know, probably at least eight times, if not 15 times as much <laughs> litigation experience as I did. And all the way through oral argument, when he was speaking, the judge was nodding and smiling approvingly and seemed to really receive everything he said really well. And then I got up there and I felt like everything, you know, like I was jinxed and uh, she wasn't too responsive. I got a few puzzled looks. I got a few blank stares. Uh, I got some polite smiles, like not, you know. Right. Okay. And so I was, you weren't, I was you weren't sure. knocking it out of the park. Okay. I was not <laughs> knocking it out of the park. No, I was not. And uh, then about almost 12 months later, we get the decision and the court, she ruled against the University of Calgary and said that uh, they were wrong to have uh, punished these students or wrong to have found the students guilty of non-academic misconduct. 
And now we have a great precedent for campus free speech. Mm-hmm. And I actually shared that story with the two lawyers that were in court in Manitoba last week. And I said, well, because one of them said, like, the, the judge didn't seem to be too sympathetic to our side. And I said, well, you know, here's a story to chew oh, on. I see. Okay. The pep talk. Okay. Uh, so what you're saying is they got they got the same reaction. Or they had the same reaction that you had. Okay. Well, that doesn't sound so good, but I guess it doesn't – it's not uh, – a view of the results at this point. It's simply uh, how they felt about their own performance. And a lot of, a lot of times people are pretty critical of themselves, you know, so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. So Freedom House. Yeah, back um, to Freedom House. So Freedom House, uh, the first, um, so there's, uh, you can get up to 40 points for your democratic and political rights and then up to 60 points for your civil liberties. And so, Again, Canada got 98 out of 100, which I think was an overly high ranking because some of the ones, like on academic freedom, Canada got four out of four. Eh? Uh, and the question was, you know, do, does the regime uh, support academic freedom? And do they, I'm paraphrasing, it's not these exact words, but do they uh, avoid or refrain from uh, imposing ideological indoctrination in schools? Well, you've got horrible. <laughs> we you've got, got four out of four. We got so, yeah. So I I don't think I don't think we deserve four out of four in uh, 2019. 2019 is the last report. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the report for 2020 is not yet completed, and I I don't know when it will be released, but it, it might not be till April or July or September because it's a very comprehensive report, and they they have a lot of people on staff that do very intensive research to really try to find out what's going on in 200 different countries. And there's a review process and so on and so forth. So mm. the report on 2020 might be, might not be till, you know, much later in 2021. But in 2019, Canada got four out of four on academic freedom when this has been in serious, serious decline for the past decade or more. And, um, uh, well, it certainly, took a hit last year, yeah. <laughs> so I went through all of the criteria and gave, uh, looked at the Canadian situation and put in my assessment. And I think that we got only 71 out of 100 in 2020. That's Applying high. these criteria. Okay. Well, you know, we're still better than, I mean, in 2019, you know, Mexico got only 62 points. Russia got 20 points. Uh, Gaza Strip got 11 points. Cuba got 14 points. China got 10 points. Uh, North Korea got three points. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, I guess we're and the worst from China from their basic the, dictatorship, as Trudeau called it. Basic, yes, it's basic. <laughs> guess, guess, guess what the worst place was, at least according to this, according to Freedom House. I don't have to guess. I'm looking at it here. <laughs> Syria. Oh, <laughs> cheating. Yeah, <laughs> Syria. Syria got zero points. Although I, I wonder if, uh, you know, a lot of that's contributed to a, kind of a, a war situation. I mean, you, you almost have to expect rankings to decline when you've got any kind of a war, insurrection, civil war, armed conflict. It's, I'm not saying it's an excuse, right? But just reality, you're not going to have a free yeah. press and freedom of movement and all of this stuff when you've got a war going on. And I don't know to what extent, I, I assume Syria is still not in a state of complete peace yet. Yes, yes. Bombing the desert into glass. Uh, there aren't too many rights when that is happening. Fair enough. 
Okay, so uh, yeah, you you can see us taking a serious hit this year. I noticed that, yeah, right at the top of the list there, the Uruguay, 98, Australia, 97, Japan, 96, United Kingdom, 94, Germany, 94, and United States, 86. All of those countries are going to, should take a heavy hit because, well, we hear a lot about the repressive regime in the United Kingdom and in Australia, especially in uh in the South Melbourne area there. Uh, it's been just international news on how terrible they've been in uh, oh, yeah. enforcing their, their laws. Uh, U.S., well, that's a real patchwork. I, I did see a story uh, coming out of New York now where uh, their uh, governor, Cuomo, is going to be facing investigation for his mishandling of the uh, long-term care home issue uh, where he sent infected patients back into them and they had misreported the number of deaths by almost half it seems so uh, yeah that that could come uh, misreported deaths you mean exaggerated yeah. deaths well they no they they underreported the deaths that caused that occurred in the long term care homes because what they did is if somebody got shipped out to a hospital and died there then they didn't count the death as being in the long-term care home, even though they were a long-term care patient. But and, I'm sure they did record it as a COVID death. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't caused by uh, – well, I mean, Cuomo was denying that uh, it was caused by them sending infected patients in there. And he's saying, oh, no, it was brought in by the staff. It wasn't brought in by the infected people that we sent there. Anyways, I the reason I mentioned that is because, you know, the patchwork down in the United States on how different areas treated them. And I think that that New York story, because people are reacting very badly to the misreporting of the data, it could be a game changer and people could start turning on uh, their authorities. Everybody may have been somewhat supportive of their local governments, but I think that this might be a turning point. And uh, of course- I doubt it. Because the, the, I, I hope I'm wrong. I think the mainstream media, they're not going, they're going to spin it in a way that does not uh, touch or alter the COVID narrative that we should all be living in fear. It's a, it's a horribly deadly virus that everybody should be afraid of. And lockdowns are good and wonderful and necessary. Lockdowns have saved lives. We need to keep the lockdowns in place. All of this stuff. I think the media is going to report on it in a way that doesn't touch the narrative. What do you think? Well, I no, I don't think so because at the same time we have this recall effort going on in California uh, for Gavin Newsom, and that has achieved its uh, signature uh, threshold that they had to get for the recall effort, which I think was one point five million, and they're going for more signatures as well. They've achieved it, so they're going to recall him or attempt to recall him based on his performance in the lockdown. They had severe lockdowns in California, and they had almost no lockdown in Florida, and they had pretty much the same outcomes. That's the interesting part, and that's being reported widely reported down in the United States now. So, because they had this patchwork of different approaches you know there's going to be lots of interesting comparisons and that's the latest one that i'm finding and it's paralleling this thing that's going on with new york as well so i mean i'm a little more hopeful that the uh the tide is going to turn i suppose but well, i hope so too and i see lots of good advocacy there's more and more individuals are coming forward more and more doctors are coming forward which is essential because well doctors just have credibility on uh uh, on on medical issues that you know everybody else including lawyers do not have that credibility 
And uh, I think the more doctors that speak out, then, uh, you know, the more we're going to have debate, which we need. And I think if we have honest debate and look at the facts, look at the data, look at the science, I think the anti-lockdown perspective is going to prevail. And if there's any doctors listening to this podcast, speak up. And I assure you that the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms will be delighted to take you on as a client if you get a threatening letter we're already involved and we've we fought them off successfully. We have acted for doctors that get a threatening letter from the College of Physicians and Surgeons of the, the province where the doctor is practicing. Doctors are terrified of the college in the same way that lawyers are terrified of the law society because the law society can take away your license to practice law. And for many lawyers, that's the sole source of income. I mean, some lawyers are, you know, it wouldn't matter as much. They could go do something else to, to make a living. But a lot of lawyers, they depend on their license to practice law and they're terrified of the law society. And so the college uh, is subject to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It has no right to censor the speech of doctors. And so when a doctor gets a threatening letter from the college, you know, because he or she dared to question the uh, the government narrative, the media narrative on lockdowns. Uh, we're happy to act for those doctors, and we shoot a very stern warning letter back to the college, and uh, we say, "Look, uh, back off, buddy, because what you're doing is not constitutional. Mm -hmm. And if you proceed to prosecute this doctor, uh, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna shed a lot of light on this because we." Uh, we tend to send out news releases uh, shortly after filing our, our court documents. So yeah, it's important no, for doctors to speak out. Yeah, I, I hope they do. Uh, I suppose and they are still, still, yeah, okay. I'd like to see more of it though, I guess. Yeah, you do mention that in the column there that, uh, that the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons are policing the speech of doctors. Maybe we can get into that a little deeper in another show. Uh, so I want to. I'll just I'll just run through some of the criteria, some of the specific areas. Uh, and again, I'm making use of the Freedom House rankings. Uh, mm -hmm. The report is called Freedom in the World. I want to make it clear I, I'm not affiliated or involved with that group. I, I've never had any communications with them. I do not speak on their behalf, and I you know give full credit to them for having developed some really good criteria. This is just purely my own analysis. And maybe when uh, Freedom House does release its report on t the state of freedom in 2020, maybe they'll give Canada a ranking that's much higher than than my 72, and that's fine. You know, it's uh, it's it's their report. Mm -hmm. So where we've declined uh, on these on this Freedom House rankings, one on the question of democracy, uh, Canada's federal and provincial elected representatives are no longer determining government policy which is invented on the fly and announced through news conferences by chief medical officers. And so citizens have no say in the content of these ever-changing health orders that are clearly and blatantly violating our charter rights and freedoms every day. Citizens have no say on that, so it's not democratic. Right. Parliament has no oversight over the news conferences at Rideau College, where Rideau Cottage, rather, where our prime minister announces hundreds of billions of dollars of spending. Technically, there's some oversight later on, but by and large, we've got the country being run from Rideau College and Parliament is more or less, uh, it's, I wouldn't quite say it's an advisory council. That would be 
exaggerated, but it's definitely moved a long ways in that direction where parliament is kind of an advisory council because everything is being dictated by the prime minister. So we're sliding on the democracy front. In regards to transparency and accountability, we're sliding because governments refuse to post on their websites the specific evidence that might possibly potentially justify violating our charter freedoms. They don't put medical and scientific evidence on their websites. They just assert that everything that they're doing is Mm science-based. So I think we're sliding on transparency and accountability. The freedom and independence of media is downhill in Canada because its uh, government is funding it and the media are not going to bite the hand that feeds them. Uh, And we see that like the same media that are getting government funding have been enthusiastic cheerleaders for lockdowns since early 2020. And they have gleefully publicized the false, exaggerated, wildly inaccurate predictions of Neil Ferguson at Imperial College. And they uh, every day continue to put Canadians into a state of panic by fear-mongering with these numbers of cases, you know, while conveniently failing to point out that every time you have a thousand cases, there's only 30 people who are sick. And, you know, failing to point out that, yes, some hospitals, not all, but some hospitals are overcrowded. However, the media conveniently doesn't mention that this has been normal every year, you know, Mm -hmm. for the past decade or two. Hospitals are very frequently overcrowded, especially during flu season. So uh, anyway, freedom and independence of the media is compromised when you have the federal government awarding subsidies to its favored media that are not going to bite the hand that feeds them, or at least they're not going to bite it very hard and draw blood. Maybe a little nip here and there, but no real hard bite. Religious freedom. uh, Canadians are no longer free to practice and express their religious faith in public. Uh, This is in Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. The Justice Centre has had to either sue or threaten to sue governments just to allow drive-in worship services where Mm. people sit inside their cars on a church parking lot you know, that's how far, that's how ruthlessly aggressive and intolerant uh, the lockdown mindset is, right? That you prevent people from having two cars sitting side by side. Because, of course, the science tells us that COVID can penetrate glass and metal, go through six feet of air, and penetrate the glass and metal of the other car and infect people, right? Presupposing that asymptomatic people are spreaders. Except in uh, Costco's parking lot. In other in Walmart, see this is a smart virus, Kevin. Oh yeah, the know. virus knows the, the virus is afraid of parking lots at Costco and Walmart, and mm-hmm. the virus does not spread in those parking lots. Um, the virus is also very deadly after eight p.m. in Quebec, which is why they have the scientific curfew, uh, and the virus spreads rapidly outdoors. We know that too, right? Isn't that the right science? The, yeah, that's the virus right. And it spreads. also travels at a level of approximately five to six feet, and when you sit down in a restaurant to eat. It doesn't affect you then. That's right. The virus only spreads when people are standing up or walking. But when people are sitting down at a table, the virus does not spread. Yes. Yeah. Very important. Um, This is a bit surreal, I guess. Oh, man. The other... uh, (laughs) other, um, Canadians are no longer free to express their personal views on sensitive topics without fear of retribution. And we touched on that with uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Law Mm. Society clamping down on speech. Universities are pandering to Antifa violence, which is why the Justice Centre is representing the Free Speech Club in its lawsuit against the University of British Columbia. 
And uh, the federal government, we've touched on this previously, is planning to censor speech on the internet using the very vague and subjective concept of hate, whatever that is, uh, as a pretext to silence discussion. So freedom of speech is on the decline. Uh, Freedom of assembly in Canada now barely exists unless you have the money or the courage or both to pay for a $1,000 fine for gathering in public. So that's down the toilet. We're very much on par with a, maybe not a, a one out of four or a zero out of four, but maybe we're down to a two out of four mm. that, you know, you can still kind of sort of maybe assemble uh, in person, but there, there's that threat of the $1,000 fine. And uh, unless it's an anti-racism protest, in which oh, case yeah. COVID again, it's just COVID knows oh, yeah. that when people are protesting against racism, COVID is not going to spread. COVID just sticks to the body because COVID can sense the anti-racism protest. But when it's an anti-lockdown protest, COVID gets very aggressive and it just spreads ruthlessly everywhere, right? Yeah, except is, except uh, to the police that are enforcing the laws that... Uh... And it okay. does not spread to the police when the police are arresting people for, uh, yeah. for, for the anti-lockdown uh, protest. Can yes. we just say call the whole thing BS and just be done with it? No, I guess oh, no, we no, can't. No, no, we can't. All right. Can't say that. Okay. Uh, and now the big one, um, well, we'll get back to it after Freedom House, but the big one, of course, that the, the due process has gone out the window for honest law-abiding citizens who exercise their charter freedom to enter, remain in, and leave Canada is a constitutionally protected right. Mm. It's in the charter. Why? Because it's one of the hallmarks of a free society. You can leave. You know, North Korea is a prison camp. Uh, Cuba, you're not allowed out. All these different countries today and previously, the Soviet bloc for, for decades, it was illegal to leave the country unless you had special permission. And special permission, you know, typically was, was granted to the good communists that could be trusted to return home. And, you know, whereas a free country, you're allowed to leave. And uh, that's a huge difference. Now, technically, well, we're still free to leave Canada, but now (laughs) here's the thing. Practically, most people that leave Canada, they're leaving it to go on holidays. They're not leaving Canada to immigrate. There are some Canadians that leave Canada to move to another country. Okay, but most of the people, they are traveling on vacation. So if you want to leave Canada and move somewhere else for a year or two or permanently, I guess this is not going to be all, all of these, you know, the, the the COVID hotels or the the hell hotels or the imprisonment in hotels or the Trudeau hotels, whatever. It's not going to apply to you if you're emigrating to another country. Uh, but for most of the travelers, this fundamentally impacts your right to leave Canada in the sense that if you want to leave Canada for a week or two to go on vacation or you want to leave Canada for four months to avoid our horrible, ugly, vicious, nasty, rotten, miserable winters, um, do I sound like an old guy? Don't you like skiing? Do you like to skate? I I don't like skating. I um, okay, all right. Uh, you get my point, no, right? I, yeah, there's yeah, lots of yeah, fun that yeah. can be had in the snow. Okay, continue. But in a free country, you have the freedom to say, you know what? I don't I don't care. I'm not a skier or a skater, and I want to be a snowbird, and I want to live in Phoenix or Florida for uh, for four or five months. That freedom is now not eliminated, but it's been severely curtailed because now you have the prospect of getting uh, detained 
in imprisoned effectively for three days and paying an extra $2,000. That's a very severe limitation on your travel rights. And I go back to, you know, the family of four that could get, uh, maybe get a, an all-inclusive for a week for $8,000 for the four of them. Uh, now they have to pay an additional 8000 when they come back. Well, that puts it out of price range, right? There's people that, that yes, we can afford 8000 for a holiday. No, we cannot afford 16000 right? That's just basic uh, common sense. And it's probably a good time to uh, note that there are exceptions to this, though they don't really say who the exceptions are. I think there's something in there so that politicians can weasel out of this. And oh, I, of course, yes. The, so. the ruling class, our, our, our masters must be exempt from these onerous uh, <laughs> requirements yeah. that, that the peasants must endure. So another Freedom House uh, criterion is do, do the laws, policies, and practices of the country treat various segments of the population equally? And I say no, because uh, in Canada, the teachers, policemen, social workers, politicians, and more than 500,000 federal, provincial government employees, they've all received their full pay since March of 2020, while the private sector workers are suddenly required to support their families on $2,000 a month. So we have blatant unequal treatment. Uh, the right to use and own our own property is another criterion. We no longer have that because your home and your business are two examples of property. Your business can be shut down by government and and thrown into bankruptcy. We have to remember as well. I don't think I don't think the politicians get this, and I don't think the public sector people get this. They've all got very generous pensions. Um, for small businessmen, for a lot of them, your business is not only your livelihood that pays your bills on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis, not only is it your livelihood, it is also your life savings and your retirement savings. So when the government forces your business into bankruptcy, they're killing off your pension and you're going to be forced to rely only on old age security, which I don't have a lot of expertise in, but it's my understanding. It's a pretty low it's kind of a welfare level, like barely the essentials, you know, pay for your, your rent and groceries. But old age security is not uh, any kind of the higher level of income that you would get uh, if you're a public sector worker or if you're a small businessman who can uh, sell a viable business and get whatever it is, a million or a half million or three million or 10 million, and that's your retirement savings. When the government destroys your business, it's just wiping out your entire financial future, which is why uh, it's awful. Mm -hmm. And the public sector people don't get it. I saw this little internet ad. uh, It said, uh, "Would would you still support lockdowns if lockdowns meant you had to lose your own job? Yes. Well, I, and I think I think that's a question to ask all the the teachers and policemen and social workers and government employees. Would you support lockdowns if it required losing your own job and shifting into living on two thousand dollars a month? Yes, but the upside to this, John, is the fact that those people only think they're going to get a good pension if there's no taxes being paid. Then they're not going to get those pensions, and that's really where we're headed right now. I mean, yes, those, absolutely. You know, private sector's taking it on the chin now, but uh, when they take it, when they go out of business, who's going to pay for all that uh, government? You know what? You raise a good point. It's very short-sighted on the part of public sector people to support lockdowns because mm. 
There won't be money for the generous pensions that you're supposed to be getting when the country's bankrupt or when we get completely devalued and the Canadian dollar turns into a peso. So even though you maybe you're getting uh, you know, $5,000 a month uh, for your pension check or, or $4,000 or, or more or less or whatever, even if you're getting a generous monthly check, it'll now be in uh, Canadian pesos rather than Canadian dollars because that's exactly where we're heading. And, and I'm glad you raised that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. So just to wrap up on the on the Freedom House, uh, you know, Canada is rapidly becoming a police state. We're joining the repressive regimes that we used to look down on 11 months ago as morally inferior. So I think that uh, in 2020 we dropped from we dropped down to 71. I think in, I think the 2019 score of 98 out of 100 was too high mm. in my view. It it uh, but. You know, but in, in my wherever it ought to have been at, we're, we're down to seventy one, which is a significant drop, and we are heading in the direction of uh, Mexico, Russia, China, Cuba, North Korea, Gaza Strip, and those places. That's the direction that we're heading in. So, if Canadians don't like that, they better get their act together and uh, speak up for their rights and freedoms. Yes, yes, we can see now that we cannot take these things for granted, uh, yet a lot of people uh, don't even seem to know that we have those rights. I'm just kind of shocked at how easily they're being uh, trampled. Uh, you had mentioned uh, freedom of religion that reminded me of a press release the Justice Center came out with regarding an Alberta pastor uh, that he is now facing jail time for opening up. Do you want to just... Uh, recap that i mean that's obviously a freedom of religion issue right there so pastor uh james coates of grace life church in, near edmonton and they have not been following the charter violating lockdown measures at their church and so they have been ticketed and harassed and monitored and the latest is that the pastor might eventually end up in jail and he's willing to take it that far. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this morning, February the 16th, he was uh, appearing before a justice of the peace and uh, there's a possibility. And I, I haven't heard yet what the outcome was that uh, he could be put in jail now, or he could end, end up there later, which will present an interesting political situation with uh, Jason Kenney, who's mm -hmm. uh, always, always portrayed himself as a, a friend of religious freedom and, you know, strong practicing Catholic and all that stuff. And so here we're going to have a pastor in jail in Alberta for defying the unscientific and evidence-free uh, public policies that, that Jason Kenney is ultimately responsible for imposing on the province. Mm -hmm. And it's Jason, who is, uh, it's Jason Kenney who is ultimately responsible, not Dina Hinshaw. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I looked up a lot of these uh, public health officials and uh, they appear to have been appointed by the previous government. And so I find that our premier has turned on his base based on the advice of uh, people that uh, really aren't his base. I find that somewhat distressing, I guess. But uh, ultimately, uh, you're right. He has to pay the price politically. He is the one in charge and he is the one watching our province sink into the mire. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So 
So as, yeah. as we head into the, the final segment of our podcast, I'd like to talk about the specific violations of the charter that the Trudeau's new policy is inflicting on Canadians. Mm-hmm. Okay. What it boils down to in one sentence is that a person accused of murder or any other crime has more rights than a an innocent Canadian not charged with any crime returning home to Canada. In the criminal law realm, police can confine a citizen or detain a citizen only after arresting that person, and they can only arrest that person after charging them with having committed a crime. And here we have Canadians coming back from abroad. They've committed no crime. They're not charged with anything, and yet they are being detained. So this is just a a huge affront to the Charter Rights and Freedoms, and uh, we've set this out in our our, uh, court application to the time anybody's listening to this, it should be uh, filed and posted on our website at www.jccf.ca. So the Charter Rights and Freedoms include uh, a right not to be arbitrarily detained or imprisoned. Well, clearly, when you get forced to go somewhere, I don't care if it's a if it's a hotel or if it's some you know mud shack out in the forest. If you're imprisoned somewhere, you're imprisoned somewhere, and. To, to to say oh well it's a stay in a hotel I mean it's like putting lipstick on a pig you know it's still a pig mm-hmm. uh, and these hotels we've had even the CBC which has a which is very biased and and pro lockdown biased they had stories about the hardships that uh, some Canadians had endured the the food was disgusting uh, there was a man who needed medical attention and was denied and they only took him to a hospital after he, he finally he threatened to call nine one one. And finally, okay, 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 we'll take you to the hospital for medical treatment. Um, so, so these places are awful, but even if they were wonderful, it's a loss of freedom to be locked up somewhere. The right to retain and instruct counsel without delay upon arrest and, and, and detention is something the accused murderer has, returning Canadian traveler does not. The right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt Another huge failing. The federal government has not put forward any evidence that returning travelers who are asymptomatic uh, are not innocent. I mean, let, let's pretend for a moment that having COVID symptoms means guilt and not yeah, having, I was COVID, say. Not having <laughs> COVID symptoms means, means innocent, right? <laughs> right. If, yeah. if there was somebody who showed up and had a fever and, and a sore throat and shortness of breath and they said, oh, you know what, buddy? We're going to take you off away somewhere. But if they were that sick, you take them to the hospital, not to some hotel where there's not necessarily doctors or nurses present. But I mean, if somebody is genuinely sick and they want, you know, they force the person to go to the hospital, that would also raise some rights and freedoms and civil liberties issues. But it wouldn't be nearly the same magnitude as taking perfectly healthy people, uh, all of whom already have a negative COVID test which they needed to board the plane. So, you know, um, so, so there is a right, a charter right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt before you get locked up. Uh, accused murderer has that and the returning Canadian traveler does not. The right to a trial in a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal. Well, the murderer has a right to a trial in a fair and public hearing 
by an independent and impartial tribunal or court. Uh, returning Canadian travelers do not. They just get taken away. So you get locked up without having been tried uh, before uh, an independent and impartial tribunal. And then there's the right to appear before to appear before a justice within 24 hours to address your detention. If you're accused of a crime and the police take you into custody, meaning you know they, they lock you up, you have a right to appear before a judge or a justice of the peace within 24 hours. And the onus is on the police, the crown prosecutors, the government to explain why you should continue to be locked up. And sometimes there are good reasons for that. If the um, if the justice of the peace thinks that there's a, a high risk, you're not going to show up for your trial or that you're likely to flee the country or that you're a threat to society, then uh, you're going to have to stay in prison until trial. And, you know, and if convicted at trial, you're going to stay in prison. But here you get people locked up without any right to, uh, to have this reviewed by a justice of the peace. So we're at a place now in Canada where returning snowbirds and other Canadians coming home have none of the rights enjoyed by those accused of committing a crime. This is where we're at. And unless and until uh, more Canadians raise a stink about it, you know, or at least try to equal and match all of these uh, authoritarians that are cheerleading all of these human rights violations. But if we don't take action, we're going to slide uh, further and further in, in the direction of, of China and North Korea. Why would we? Are we are sliding, yes. We are sliding. But slide further. I mean, do we want yeah. to slide even further in that direction? So on that very sad note, I will... Uh, We'll see what we'll see what's going on next week. Do you want to raise a cheerful topic before we sign off? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually. Well, I just okay. want to raise this uh, for future. Yeah, this is all about the uh, race-based vaccine priorities that are being brought in now. I don't suppose. Oh, the, the look in your face tells me you don't know what I'm talking about. I don't. Okay, well, uh, just to quickly inform people, and in December, uh, this National Vaccine Advisory Council, and I don't know the exact name of it, uh, decided that when the vaccine comes in, that we would do it based on vulnerabilities and we would start with older people and sort of work our way down from there. After we do the most vulnerable, the, the people with comorbidities and things like that, then we go for the old people, work our way down. They just changed that on February 15th and said that they're going to start prioritizing the vaccine distribution by race. Now you're kidding. I'm not who kidding. said this is a federal government announcement. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's it's a good one, man. Okay, I mean, and, and how by one, race is that? Are you referring to Aboriginals first? It's they're not really clear. There's kind of a couple of big <laughs> papers that I was looking at this morning where they talk about the equity matrix. Oh boy! And uh, yeah, there's a BMG Global paper that I'll link to uh, that starts off with this interesting sentence: The COVID nineteen pandemic has exposed social inequities that rival biological inequities in disease exposure and severity. And yeah, it just goes downhill from there. And the thing is, these are like the, you know, the top specialists in the country that are uh, using this pandemic now to uh, 
push this wokeism. I mean, what they came out with in December was perfectly reasonable and based on the data, because we know who's vulnerable to this uh, disease. And now they've decided to uh, to sort of turn it into a social justice warrior affair. We can go into that on another day. So you're saying, are you saying that amongst the first Canadians to get vaccinated should be like a black francophone lesbian Muslim in a wheelchair should be first in line? I don't know. I've been looking for the list. I can't find it. But they do talk about, oh, well, you know, refugee communities show a lower level of vaccination. And so they should be vaccinated first with this and stuff like this. And uh, yeah, I'll I'll pull out some juicy quotes next time from these uh, papers. Well, as long as these vaccines... I mean, this is terrible. Of course, of course, it's terrible to to blatantly discriminate in this fashion. But it's not necessarily the biggest evil in the world, provided that these vaccines remain optional and not mandatory. And I think that's the real kicker. I think that's the the most important issue. Is that okay? You know, I, obviously, I disagree with with uh, race based distribution of the vaccine. But uh, what's even more important is that it be voluntary and not mandatory. And when, when you see, here's what's frightening to me is when you see a federal government without any science, without any evidence, without any thought, without any justification, they come up with this, they, they completely destroy international travel. Again, I predict it's going to destroy 90%, if not 99% of international travel. People are just not going to travel internationally if coming back to Canada means a $2,000 price tag to pay for your own forcible confinement because the government doesn't trust you to quarantine at home, even though they're threatening you know $750,000 in six months in jail for violating your quarantine. I mean, if this is the kind of policy that we can come up with on, uh, on the charter freedom to enter and leave the country, that same fanaticism can very easily permeate a vaccination policy that says everybody needs to get must get vaccinated because they don't care about the science. And then you could come forward and say, okay, well, that's but, my point. But you know, one one percent, you know, just speculating here, right? But it's like so one percent of the people that are getting the vaccine are just dropping dead, and another nine percent are becoming seriously ill. And if you said that, it'd be like, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Evidence doesn't matter. I mean, once evidence doesn't matter, once logic doesn't matter, once science doesn't matter, then th- that's that's a terrifying situation because then I could see government saying, well, we're going to have mandatory vaccines, even, you know, even though the facts on the ground are that this vaccine is, is dangerous or that it doesn't prevent, prevent contagion. That's a whole other topic we can cover in another show because – I'm told that the vaccine companies themselves have said that if you take the vaccine, it will help you to not get COVID or to increase your chances of resisting it, but it does not make you not contagious. Yeah, I know. <laughs> which well, is this... another, you know, which is yeah. another, if, if okay. that's true, if that's true, why would you have mandatory vaccinations if receiving the vaccine does not prevent you from spreading it to somebody else? Right. There's no right, logic yeah. there. But this is the scary thing. We're in this society where there seems to be so little logic and reason that it's absolutely terrifying because you yes. can't say, well, the government would never do that because the government would realize A, B and C. It's like, no, 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 no. The facts don't matter anymore. It's, it's like a fact free universe and the government just does whatever it wants. 
Yes, welcome to Trudeau's idiocracy. Yes, I understand. Well, that was my point here was that they had a good policy and then less than three months later, they changed it to something else. The good policy policy being vaccinating the vulnerable. Yeah, basically, you know, doing the Barrington uh, thing, right? You know, let's, let's Bar- the Great the Barrington Declaration. That's let's right. Put, yeah. yeah, and then so senior seniors and nursing homes are first in line for the vaccine. Now, you're saying they're thinking about changing this, or they've definitively changed it? I understand changed that it. they are. They have changed it based on the recommendations. I'm not sure exactly where I'm at. I read a okay. story and I started digging around. That's only this morning. I just wanted to tack that on to the end of the program, and now we're going on too long. Okay, so we're gonna stop now. We'll talk okay. about this later. Thanks a lot, John, for. Uh, participating again in the show that is named after you of course (laughs) (laughs) we'll talk to you next week talk to you next week kevin take care bye bye